ladies and gentlemen, I think it's probably time to begin. I have been asked to uh, make a number of announcements, and I would certainly like to briefly introduce the speakers to you. Uh, one small uh, item, I've been asked to ask you to take no flash photographs during the session. Uh, next, I'd like to welcome you all here on behalf of the Penn American Center and to say that we're extremely grateful to Rutgers University in Newark for their assistance with this event and particularly to Edith Kurzweil, who is the conference director of that just completed conference. Finally, there will be a reception in the lobby after the program is ended. Uh, before launching in on our topic, nationalism in East and Central Europe, the writer's dilemma, you have the nameplates of the participants of the panel in front of you, and I'm sure a few of them need an introduction. Nevertheless, a commercial in each case is in order, I think. Slavenka Drakulic, I'm giving them in uh, al alphabetical order, second on my left, is a writer from Croatia who has just published a volume of essays called How We Survived Communism and Even Laughed. I'm not sure if she's still laughing, but we'll hear about that today. Uh, and is about to publish a novel in English, Holograms of Fear. Georgi Konrad, who is the president of International PEN, uh, has also recently published a new novel called The Feast in the Garden. Cheslav Miłosz, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, and I think the, certainly the, um, dare I call him the patriarch of our proceedings here today, uh, has recently published a volume of essays called Beginning with My Streets, and a volume, his latest volume of poems is called Provinces. Uh, on my immediate, I'm sorry, uh, I proceeded with the names. Yes, you have the plates. On my right is Tatiana Tolstaya, uh, the Russian writer who is spending the present year teaching in Baltimore. She also has just published a new volume of short stories called Sleepwalker in a Fog. And on my right, extreme right, Adam Zagajewski, the Polish poet and essayist, has also recently published a book of poems called Canvas. The point of this long introduction is to urge you to go out and buy those books immediately and to remind you that although our topic inevitably will spill over into politics, we are, have here a distinguished group above all of writers. My name is Michael Scammell. I'm a vice president of International Pen and occasionally write a word or two on these topics as well. Well, the title nationalism in East and Central Europe uh, is obviously a provisional and a conventional one. It's impossible to sum up all the problems uh, that will uh, be covered at this discussion today. And uh, the format that we will adopt is to ask each of the speakers, first of all, to say uh, something on the topic. Each of them has been primed in advance with certain uh, questions. And uh, then to throw open the discussion, or rather, preferably, to throw the session open for questions to begin with. There's a microphone at the front of the hall. 
uh, I would like to ask you to use the microphone just first of all so that you can be understood and secondly because this discussion is being taped for reproduction at a later date. I'm not sure if I should give a commercial for the eventual uh, production, but I'm not sure whether it's going to be a tape or a text. Um, well, I don't need to say very much about the topics we are going to discuss, but perhaps a word or two about what was in our minds when we put this panel together. First of all, of course, we uh, were motivated by the uh, new political situation in East Europe and Russia, uh, Central Europe, if you like. Here already we have one of the problems, that is, of terminology to discuss this area. And that in turn brings up what I take to be one of the principal topics of our discussion today, and that is the question of identity. That is, the identity of the nations and peoples who live in this part of the world, uh, and identity for the writers who also live apart or all of the time there, or who have derived their own authorial identity from there. Up until now, it's fair to say, I think, that so much of that identity was defined or perhaps deformed by the existence and the uh, political uh, hegemony of communism. And now the question arises of whether or not the collapse of communism may have left a vacuum and what is going to occupy that vacuum. Uh, another aspect of identity is the way in which it affects the writers from this part of the world. Traditionally, as I think most of you have come here today uh, are aware, writers have had a greater moral authority and have been perceived as playing a much larger role in society than they commonly are in, let's say, Anglo-Saxon society at least, in we most Western countries. They have been variously perceived as prophets, philosophers, spiritual mentors, and so on. And uh, more has been expected of them than uh, has been expected commonly of us. Another important uh, aspect is that one of the principal ways in which the writer is defined is through his or her language which also happens to be a principal defining feature of most of the nations and peoples in this part of the world. Uh, so uh, the writer's search for identity can be said to have a great deal in common with the search for identity of these nations and peoples. And if the writer is to continue to be a leader in this area, to be regarded, looked up to and respected, then uh, he presumably will be sharing in the spiritual and psychological crisis that this, these peoples are undergoing. This brings up finally, I suppose, something that might be discussed here, the question of responsibility. High expectations, high uh, hopes, uh, if you like, bring great responsibilities. And I suppose a question that hovers around the edge of this discussion is whether writers are going to continue to carry those responsibilities. And it's conceivable that if and as those societies approximate more to a Western free market capitalist individualist model, 
perhaps one of the things to go will be that rather privileged position, privileged both morally, also very often materially, that writers in that part of the world have occupied. Well, those few remarks are designed uh, to introduce the theme, to gain us some time as latecomers arrive, um, and to raise the curtain uh, on the more important contributions of my colleagues here. Uh, I think uh, if uh, Cheslav agrees, I will uh, ask him to open the proceedings by offering us some thoughts on this topic, and then I will go around the table uh, before opening it uh, wider. Cheslav, would you care to comment? Uh, I guess that uh, observing American reactions to all those little nations inhabiting a large part of Europe and Asia. I, I must say the Americans are very uneasy about those nationalities uh, because it seems to be completely rational. It defies logic, uh, the appearance of so many entities there. And maybe there is another source of uneasiness. Uh, <coughs> History is not well taught at American universities. In the elitist American university before the First World War, a lot of history was taught and Americans were familiar with history of Western Europe, of France, Germany, but not of Eastern part of Europe and of Asia. And now with that call for multicultural studies of the past, really where to put in all those uh, studies about little, uh, little nations. Uh, and the fact is that when we look at uh, m those uh, cases of entities now becoming independent nations, we see that every case is different and it is in order to understand, you have to go back in history, uh, sometimes centuries. And this is, uh, so, so this is very complicated. Uh, next thing I would like to remark is that uh, this trend of uh, division into small national states, similarly, uh, is the same as after the demise of the Habsburg Empire and the Tsarist Russia. But in my opinion, it is also different. Uh, because let us notice a strange fact that it happens at the moment uh, when a movement towards the unification of the planet uh, has been going on very strongly. And that unification in the realm, for instance, of mass culture is a fact, becoming more and more fact. So the emergence of those nation various nationalities seems to be a sort of a trick played on history uh, or maybe a need of mankind to diversify themselves uh, against a general uh, unification and Gleichschaltung. Uh, so this is a very interesting, I guess, I submit to you for consideration. 
Now I, uh, I, I go back to the main topic, namely reactions of writers. Uh, the fact is that the present situation in Europe forces us to assume an identity which is not necessary to our liking. Because we are asked, who are you? Declare yourself. I guess that in Yugoslavia there are many people who, are, who do not like that sort of being pigeonholed in one uh, uh, category, but they have to ask, to answer, are you Serb or are you Croat? But similar thing uh, is in other areas of Europe, and uh, I may go back to my own experience, uh, namely, I'm a Polish poet, that's l my language is Polish, but in the conflicts between Poland and Lithuania, I rather take side of Lithuania than of Poland. Namely, I am dissident in a way within uh, Polish mentality. Because I under because Doras are completely different uh, historical mentality, diffi diffi different uh, attitude towards history in the Poles and in the Lithuanians. And I understand both. Uh, and maybe uh, one, one of the reasons when I am this in a way a dissident is that Poland is around 40 million people and Lithuania around four. <coughs> but, uh, but this is a, d I do not want to be pigeonholed. I don't want to be uh, neatly defined as far as nationality. And I guess that that's a very healthy uh, reaction, healthy opposition uh, to, to, to that categorizing. Uh, because uh, I grew up in a city, Vilno or Vilnius today, which was multilingual. Mm, in fact, it was the main languages were Polish and Yiddish. There were very few Lithuanians. So the claim of Lithuania to that capital, to their capital, is more or less like claim of the Jews to Jerusalem, that historical, not ethnic, ethnically justified. But I consider that those uh, historical claims are valid enough and uh, there are, of course, constant problems with the Polish minority and uh, Lithuanian Republic. And I am not prone to hi national hysteria, sometimes in provoked in Poland by some moves of the new Lithuanian government. So I give that as an example. Uh, it seems to me that a solution for national Mm, mutual hatreds uh, and for uh, national aspirations, uh, of often lit legitimate aspirations, solution was, uh, uh, in, uh, was searched for in imposing by force a large, uh, large organism of an empire like Habsburg Empire or uh, Tsarist Empire and le later on Soviet Empire. But it proved 
that those efforts, those attempts to impose by force uh, Pax and uh, mutual harmony failed. So perhaps we have to look now for a new formula uh, in a new world. What is that formula? I don't know. Uh, I can tell you of one, uh, uh, one detail which I ascribe to some to some extent to my books. In Poland, in a little border town between on the border of Poland and Lithuania, uh, a group of young enthusiastic people created a borderland foundation. And their goal is to foster a harmonious uh, cohabitation of various nationality inhabiting that little corner, little region. They had no large ambitions, but they uh, have ambitions of establishing good neighborly relations in one district. And I consider it a, a highly uh, a commendable initiative. So this is in guise of my introduction. Of course, I am ready to answer many questions because as I said, every case is uh, special, and uh, I am able to talk uh, hours on how it came about certain situations in our part of Europe. <coughs> um, George, could I ask you to speak next? I also um, should just say, in case some of you are taken aback, that George will have to leave our session probably before we end to catch a plane back to the part of Europe we're discussing. So um, uh, be prepared for a sudden departure, which has nothing to do with the bathroom or anything like that. Um, George, would you like to uh, take up our theme? Yes. <coughs> Years ago, if you ask an East European what is the main conflict in your home, uh, probably uh, if he was, he or she was a dissident, he said a certain conflict between the state and the society. It was the cliche-like answer. And at that time, all the dissidents felt that they are members of a bigger part. This bigger part is the society. Of course, it was quite uh, relative, this feeling. And if somebody was just uh, maybe arrested, then in this moment he couldn't feel that he belongs to the bigger part because around him uh, was something much bigger than he himself or she himself, herself. Uh, and even the number of the dissidents was not so overwhelming. It was quite a small spot. But however, uh, they could feel that they represent uh, a big number of other youth, actually a national society against uh, an imposed uh, colonial form of rule uh, with mediations of the local power. And at that time, it was two tendencies uh, of the oppositions. Uh, one was in, for instance, in my country. Uh, one was more interested in the liberal values, human rights, uh, 
uh, uh, unbourgeoisement, actually a bourgeois society, a normal bourgeois, European bourgeois society, that was the goal. Uh, uh, and uh, to arrive after 200 years of uh, uh, being late uh, to the very similar uh, principles of the uh, Dutch, uh, English, uh, American, French, and so on revolutions. So the normal uh, equality of the political rights without any uh, special overhelming power of the state. Uh, people who were people of the state wanted to become independent from the state and from this whole empire of the Soviets, uh, uh, which was uh, also a military bloc and uh, created a kind of uh, homogenization, uh, uh, which was uh, also uh, the, the word of the censorship around the individual and also a kind of set of ideas, values, symbols, which were forced uh, on all the individuals, so uh, even the, the reflection was a, a kind of self-defense against uh, some uh, imposed cliches, norms. And it was not the first uh, experience in that sense, because uh, all those who uh, lived also in the period of the uh, growing uh, uh, right-wing, extreme right-wing, let's say, fascist uh, uh, tendencies and also in, during the Second World War, uh, had experienced, too, that it's not wise to say what they think, and it was the continuous, uh, 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 yes, authority of the, state, of the state, sometimes totalitarian, sometimes uh, somehow liberalized. And uh, then arrived uh, the turnaround, and yes, and the, the other tendency said that maybe uh, uh, the system the, of the so Soviet Empire will uh, will be break down because there are strong forces within it. It's a kind of national renaissance, uh, a kind of development of uh, national identities which will broke. Uh, 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 the forced uh, unity of the military bloc, and if this uh, military confrontation between the West and the East will be over, then of course all the uh, colonized nations will be independent, and then came the ideas, the maybe utopian, maybe realistic ideas, uh, what to do after, how, where to belong. The illusory ideas were that, oh, uh, we leave the East, we come to the West. Uh, we will be member of the EC. Uh, if uh, I said maybe six years ago, if you would now to make a referendum in Hungary, would you like to be members of the Comecon or of the EC? Of course, 90% would say EC. Uh, it was no question, but the question was that uh, we were not so welcomed in this uh, uh, integration. So uh, the integration fall apart, uh, the new integration wasn't done, and a kind of uh, loneliness, later on even uh, a kind of self uh, 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 
self-nourishing paranoia uh, started to develop in all of these countries uh, of this loneliness of uh, being encircled uh, and uh, the far enemy became the close enemy the neighbor is the enemy the fifth division is the enemy in uh, our uh, country uh, there are some national minorities if they belong to a, a neighboring uh, national state then they maybe uh, uh, they can be a kind of fifth division of this uh, uh, neighboring state which have of course also his own interest then there are frictions and uh, this type of uh, uh, this type of uncertain irritated and uh, somehow a little bit uh, uh, mistrustful uh, national identity which is quite uh, uh, regular in these countries uh, can become also quite hysterical if uh, his background is not strong enough. Uh, and then uh, as Tatiana Tostaya formulated the last time in New York, she said that there are the nationalists, those are nationalists who are in minority position and those who are in a majority position are the imperialists. Uh, and I guess that she uh, saw that it's independent of the size. Those who are in a country uh, in the majority pos position are the imperialists. Uh, at least uh, we can say that there are resentments uh, because uh, those who are in majority can be also uh, in uh, another country in minority position, like, uh, for instance, the Hungarian, who in Hungary itself, because the uh, country lost uh, two-thirds of the territories after the third, First World War, there are only, only maybe one and a half person of national minorities if you don't take the gypsies a nation. Um, there are gypsies who want to have uh, the, um, the status of the national minority. And, uh, uh, but uh, there are uh, quite important uh, uh, national minorities in the other countries. Then uh, they are there in the minority position and uh, it's quite normal that uh, there is a shift uh, here and there between two strategies of the minority strategy and of the majority strategy, but everybody is, is somehow uncertain in the environment and <coughs> uh, all those ideas which uh, were quite uh, sympathetic and uh, promising uh, that it will be some kind of democratic federation, uh, East Central European uh, Federation, were, uh, became quite illusory because all these countries want uh, to become first uh, in the run to the EC, so they believe that the other are only burden on them. It makes a not very uh, uh, tasty uh, competition uh, and a kind of rivalry that we are somehow more advanced than they. Uh, and uh, from the other side, uh, there is a new uh, borderline which starts to become uh, more and more phantomatic, uh, but uh, 
more and more people uh, speak about it. I mean that uh, many people say that there are now uh, three zones, uh, and these are mostly by the religion uh, defined, the Western Christian Christianity, the Eastern Christianity, Orthodoxies, and the Islam. And uh, uh, there are even nationalists who say that uh, um, the danger is the Pravoslavian danger. And they mean with that uh, Romania and Serbia, and uh, I heard the same views also in, uh, from Croatians. Uh, I heard it also from Polish people. Uh, but uh, it means, of course, that Romania and Bulgaria are somehow closed out, uh, and uh, there is also a kind of reality in this fact that we are the we are the darlings, uh, the Hungarian, the Czechs. Uh, Polish are a little bit uh, more questionable because of the uh, new internal uh, developments. But however, um, uh, we three uh, who met in Visegrad and we will become uh, members of the EC after Sweden, uh, Austria, and so on. Uh, but the other, uh, they should uh, remain on the other side of the borderline, uh, two troublesome people. Uh, and uh, maybe the Japanese could. Uh, could uh, could be more involved. Uh, at least this is the West European uh, point of view. I guess that all the uh, political communities have now an intellectual aporia. Uh, that there is a poverty of the mind uh, in all these questions, and maybe therefore we can read every day the news from Yugoslavia, how many people are dead. And I feel that uh, uh, the political classes are not enough mature to handle these problems. Uh, for instance, it's quite uh, mad uh, that in the post-Chernobyl process uh, there are national nuclear policies and uh, uh, national uh, pollution policies which make, uh, which put the uh, the pollution on the other side of the border, and uh, which are extremely negligent uh, in uh, uh, mortally uh, uh, important uh, uh, ecological issues, uh, and uh, with a kind of national proud, even don't let to uh, involve in the uh, nuclear power stations problems, uh, although they are quite uh, dangerous time bombs. So I believe that uh, uh, in a period when uh, the real competition in the world is no more national, is no more between uh, international, uh, no more between enterprises, but between economical chance spaces, let's say, uh, North America, Europe, uh, Japanese Asia, and so on, uh, uh, it's. Uh, a real uh, supplementary process uh, uh, to raise the national issues, to have some, uh, some we feeling, some collective ego, some plural uh, we. Uh, and uh, in the other, uh, from the other side, it's also not only a danger of uh, uh, having uh, uh, englobed in, in, in some uh, transnational processes, but it's also a, 
a very important necessity in this area of Eastern Europe because all the national, the development of the nations, which was somehow a little bit normal uh, in the Protestant areas of Europe and which was already somehow uh, problematic in the Catholic area where the centralistic uh, uh, state was uh, quite, uh, uh, quite aggressive uh, in the on bourgeoisement too. Uh, it was a almost reasonable but very fragile solution uh, to have, for instance, this Habsburg Empire where 11 people could live together uh, without killing each other, without bloodshed. And it was a quite artificial loyalty to the Habsburg, therefore it had to be uh, over uh, after the First World War, the Germany stayed, even after the disappearing of the Hohenzollerns, Russia stayed even after the disappearing of the Romanovs, and uh, with Russia also the great imperial power and uh, maybe the Bolsheviks were the toughest to, uh, to keep together the empire and the, uh, the non-Bolsheviks uh, uh, were not strong enough to do that and therefore uh, the whole problem was postponed maybe with uh, 70 years. But the problems which are postponed uh, come out from uh, from the refrigerator and a late uh, development of the national states is an unavoidable uh, process. Uh, so you can have uh, an analytic view uh, to that and you can also say that yes, I want to have uh, the same uh, equal position for my nation in the family of the nations if there is a family, but there is no family uh, for these people, that's even the problem, that uh, the old federation somehow, I mean uh, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, somehow don't work, work because the people feel that it was somehow something uh, related to the communist, uh, communism, uh, centralist, uh, first they would like to dismantle it and then put it together. But I would give you an, ex an example, maybe I'm speaking too long. Uh, yes. Maybe you could, uh, uh, yes, I uh, finish. An example, uh, Budapest in the Hungarian capital, uh, there are uh, 22 districts. And the whole democratic lawmaking process uh, created an absurdity, uh, a law on Budapest, on the capital, that these 22 districts are all sovereign and uh, the whole capital and the leadership of the city uh, cannot give any order to these uh, mayors of the districts because everybody wants to become independent from all the other and then we will decide if we want to cooperate or not. It's a kind of strange, uh, a little bit I would say democratic anarchism uh, with even a kind of new left uh, uh, accent. Sometimes it comes really from the new right, so it's a very confused situation, but everybody wants to have his own autonomy. And of course, all the national minorities, ethnic groups will have, will want to have their uh, uh, political institutionalized life uh, will define themselves as nations. There is no rational criteria why to give uh, this title to be 
members of a nation to some people and not to give it to some other people. Everybody will get it intellectually. It's, uh, no, it's logical that it will be done so. Uh, the size uh, uh, will be more and more relativized. The border lines will be also relativized. And uh, the fact is that there is no uh, uh, efficient uh, uh, transnational organization for these people, so also the clashes will uh, come. Uh, but there is an other and even greater force than the national uh, ambitions and uh, even sometimes hysterias and uh, uh, exaggeration of this whole romantic uh, uh, intellectual stuff of the identity which leads uh, quite near to hysteria and to uh, quite uh, uh, uninteresting discussions, uh, how many identity can a man have? If you have a dozen, why not to have them? Uh, I remember that uh, one of uh, uh, the greatest poets said that uh, uh, you can't have only one identity uh, as you can't love two person. Uh, then I uh, had the feeling that he's quite old. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, George, can I? Yes, uh, I finish. Uh, so uh, now the main problem is that you have everywhere the national minorities, and the national minorities will grow. They will be refugees if their problem will not be solved. In the new nations, which all want to be homogeneous national states, uh, states, their position will be extremely questionable. There will be fights and new ideas are necessary. They are not yet here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, one uh, small footnote or translation to what George was saying for some of you in the audience. Uh, when he was discussing the religious differences, he used the term pravoslav, which I know many of you in this audience will recognize, but others may not recognize it as orthodox Christian. So that that division, uh, which has been increasingly discussed in uh, Central and East Europe would be uh, between Catholic Europe and Orthodox Christian Europe. Uh, well, um, since I have someone who comes from an Orthodox Christian part of Europe on my right, Tatiana Tolstaya, would you like to speak next, please? Uh, first of all, I would like to... Um, uh, to say something about Mr. Connor just said uh, about what I said in turn in on the conference in New York, I uh, I said something different uh, about uh, nationalism and imperialism. Uh, he he mentioned something about the minorities and majorities. I couldn't grasp that just because it was not my idea. What I actually said is I said that there are two. I exaggerate, of course, as I always do, but. Um, what's the use of being a writer, not exaggerating? Uh, I said that there are two opposite approaches to that problem, which has no solution, by the way. This problem has no solution. But uh, from my point of view, if a certain group of people calling themselves a nation wants to get rid of all possible foreigners, then this is called nationalism. 
And if a group of people wants to keep these foreigners because uh, this group understands that its foreigners are interesting, they add certain diversity, and they just love foreigners, then these people are called imperialists. So there is no way of staying clear of labels. And in this sense, I'm a pure imperialist, I must confess. I hate staying together only with a homogeneous mass of people of my, uh, uh, whatever it is, ethnicity, I don't know, because I think that there are no such nation as Russians. It's just a geopolitical uh, idea, being a Russian. I myself, I have, well, at least seven or eight uh, nationalities in me, so to say. I know people of seven or eight nationalities that uh, happen to be my ancestors. And about others, I just don't know. Because as you know, we know our grandfathers, great-grandfathers sometimes, if you're lucky enough, but then it's just void. Well, whatever, uh, for me, the be belonging to a certain uh, nationality is just speaking a certain language which is given to you. You do not choose the language when you are born. You are born into a certain language or sometimes you are born uh, into a family that speaks two languages and then you speak two languages. Sometimes you prefer one of these languages, sometimes you just use both. So for me, it's a question of actually language and then culture. Uh, and as a writer, for me, this culture is a uh, written and spoken culture in that very language. Um, as for trying to find out uh, where a certain nation ends and where it starts, um, I once uh, happened to see a little article uh, written by one linguist from North Korea. There was a conference in Moscow, the linguistical conference, and uh, a friend of mine showed me the um, article that was published by that uh, very scholar from North Korea. The article was about uh, North Korean and South Korean languages. As you know, it's the same language, and they're the same people. Uh, that person said, the author of the article said that those who say that North Korean language is, which sounds like South Korean language is written in the same letters and so on and so on, that it is the same language. This person is the enemy of people and he is the bloody imperialist, an imperialist shark, and he is committing the worst possible mistake in the world. So uh, eventually he has to be executed, of course. And more than that, uh, yeah, because the North Korean language is a socialist language and the South Korean, which sounds the same, is just a bourgeois language. Uh, and more than that, then if you think Mm, thoroughly, you will realize that North Koreans come from a very special uh, North Korean ape, and South Koreans come from South Korean ape, which is of course bourgeois and always while still staying in caves or wherever, was very mean towards socialist uh, ape that somehow knew where the truth is, what is right, what is wrong. Well, anyway, that's. I'm afraid that if you don't have uh, around you people of other nationality, you will turn somehow towards uh, people uh, within your own nation and invent these sort of things. Uh, on the other hand, the, there are s such things as, for example, 
Uh, I think you, if you all followed at a certain uh, extent the events that um, that take place uh, in the former Soviet Union, you heard about a certain Zhirinovsky, uh, which is regarded as a future Mussolini or Hitler or whatever, a very dangerous man of um, of a very strange behavior, strange just. Uh, body language and strange things he said. Everyone enjoys what he says, but everyone is scared because uh, he's, he looks like a crazy person, but he attracts uh, people, it seems. Uh, and uh, his view are purely fascist. One of the things uh, he says, yes, his idea is to establish a very, very strong uh, Russia or Soviet Union or whatever and uh, to, um, to scare the whole world and to rule over that world because he is just uh, the right person to do that. Uh, one of the things he said recently was why should all these people, and he meant all, all nations that live in the Soviet Union, why should all these people uh, speak their languages, their they speak, they want to speak 50 different languages. It's a social neurosis, he said. There is one wonderful good language which is Russian, so let us speak Russian. Why should we invent all these languages? And this person has uh, um, philological education. He studied in the uh, Institute for Oriental Studies and he speaks Turkish, but it somehow left no trace on his brain. It's easier for him to speak Russian, so he presumes that everyone would prefer to do that, uh, which is, of course, another extreme of that very question. Uh, I understand the feelings of uh, the of peoples who inhabited Soviet Union, uh, those who lived in the republics, the big republics, the 14 or so, these big republics, then autonomous republics, which are... Um, the um, the territories with uh, different status, but actually just the same, uh, because um, the power belonged to a certain center, and uh, all these people were more or less dependent on the center. Uh, I understand the feelings of all these peoples uh, against Russian language, because they regard language as mm, the tool of oppression. Uh, so. Whether Russian is good or not, and Russian is a beautiful language and one of the most languages uh, on earth, I would say, uh, just because it is rich and it has wonderful literature and uh, just because I speak it, I am sure that everyone would say the same about their language too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just, I like it and uh, I, I want to continue speaking Russian and to I would say studying Russian, because you never know your own language good enough. Uh, but I understand that others don't want to do that. Why should they? Uh, but what happens is, mm, during the, for example, during the recent events in Georgia, when there were fightings in the street and demonstrations and uh, whatnot, th all the slogans, all the uh, slogans in the street were in Georgian and English. Uh, there were no slogans in Russian as far as I could see, uh, because they were not meant for Russians. They were meant for those who came from CNN to tape that and for, uh, 
for Georgians who, um, well, were supposed to understand what is written. Um, so without knowing English, I wouldn't understand what they actually want. I'm sure that there were lots of people who do not know English. Uh, of the knowledge of Russian language. And of course, it is, um, it is, it will be a, uh, a certain, mm, people will lose certain things uh, trying to forget what they uh, used to know in Russian because mm, different uh, nations uh, in the former Soviet Union wouldn't be able to correspond with each other. Uh, it is, it's obvious that it's the same if uh, people who live in this country, in America, they would try to forget English and keep their own languages, and there are lots of languages here uh, around, they will lose any ability of uh, communicate, which is pretty sad, but understandable. Uh, the a certain pressure to uh, to drop that language of oppression, the Russian, uh, that very idea, I met it here in this country. Uh, so it's not only the idea that comes for those who are actually oppressed, who used to be oppressed, but there is a general idea that it's, the Russian is somehow undemocratic, that is the imperialist language. When I first he came here in 88, the American public didn't know much about the so about Soviet Union. There's now there is no problem with that. Uh, I practically, you know, Americans are very quick in studying. Um, now I never hear stupid questions about uh, my country. Well, there is a certain ignorance, of course, which is normal, but it's a normal ignorance. But uh, things that I was asked in '88 just they were unbelievable. And very often I heard in that year. Uh, the question, now that you are free, you, you would certainly drop the Cyrillic alphabet <laughs> and adopt our wonderful Latin alphabet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, it sounded not only ridiculous, but mm, as usual, it showed a certain uh, historical miscalculation and misunderstanding because uh, Russian Cyrillic alphabet, uh, though it was um, invented as such uh, pretty late, but it uh, comes from the, mm, from the more ancient origin, so to say, because it was the adaptation of Greek letters, uh, which in their form are, of course, much older than the Latin version. Uh, they all come, mm, all these alphabets, they come from Phoenician language, Phoenician alphabet, but Greeks were the first to create a certain alphabet. And as for Latin alphabet, it was um, the, the adaptation of these forms uh, to, to those who use Latin, and Latin culture is much younger than Greek one. So mm, the idea of reducing uh, any part of my mm, cultural legacy sounds ridiculous to me. Well, I will, I will end here for a while because uh, there are some things that I will sure 
answering the questions if there are any questions. And I'll pass the word back to you. Thank you, Tatiana. If there are no questions, then we'll just go around the table again. Uh, Slavinko? Oh. There are two speakers still to come. I said the yes. questions will come later. I'm yes. sorry, I'm not saying you'll get them now. Yeah, no. Sure. no, I no, 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 no. Uh, I was going to ask Slavenka Drakulic to speak next, and then Adam Zagajewski. No one will be forgotten. Um, thank you. Um, I think it's about time to go um, to be more personal. So I'm, uh, you know, I will speak on a more personal level now. With after all these great. A historical, political, and linguistic introduction to the problem. Um, I would uh, like to pick up where um, the sentence that Milos said, and this is, uh, what about the people who don't like to be pigeonholed? What about them, indeed? Um, this is one of the problems that not many people do address or dare to address, basically, um, especially, especially in the country at war. Um, I would like to say a couple of things about, really very briefly, uh, about the feeling of uneasiness. And this is, uh, I think, uneasiness that the whole generation feels in Yugoslavia right now. This is a post-war generation, and that actually people are maybe not um, ready to speak about that. It's not even mentioned in the other countries either, you know. Everybody is really euphoric about the nationality, about nationalism. So they don't speak about the problem. And I think the problem for our generation uh, has been, at least in Yugoslavia, okay, let's limit ourselves, at least Yugoslavia, is that two things happen at once. One is mm, uh, the break the break with the history, actually, because what, of what happened in 1981. And then the, the problem of the new identity. Now, you have to confront two things. You have to, you know, somehow reconcile with your past in order to, to, to gain your new identity. And to reconcile with the past, with the, uh, the past 40 years of, of life in, in Yugoslavia, it's a quite a problem because it was not, the country was not a part of Eastern Bloc. We could travel, we could, as Dubravka said uh, the other day at Rutgers, my colleague Dubravka Ogre, she said we could go to buy coffee to, to Trieste, which is apparently, which was wonderful at that time, but apparently now is a problem, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the shoes, Italian shoes too. Um, the thing is that um, uh, that generation had a lot of freedom, uh, had a quite a good living. We could uh, travel, we could uh, speak languages, learn languages, and in fact, I think that uh, rock music came there, uh, the literature, foreign literature. Uh, I think it is basically that we felt that we belonged to the world, especially after 1968. So it was this feeling that you mentally belonged to the world, you know. And when um, 1989 came uh, with the new democratic governments, uh, um, what happened, they, they, they started to tell us on both sides, you know, your life for last 40 years, but I have to say it was more on Croat side, your life for four, last 40 year, years was no good. You were terribly repressed, you couldn't speak, you couldn't say you are Croat or Serb, which is not truth. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't do anything, I mean, it was uh, terrible, you know, secret police oppression or whatever, you know. But this is not true. So I think these pre pre people do feel very strange. Indeed, I feel very uneasy, you know, because I'm not ready to uh, throw away my past. Uh, I was never a communist, 
uh, of course, and <laughs> and I even have a problem with the communist regime. But the problem is that uh, I'm not. I, I don't want people to tell me your past. You should throw away your past. This is not good. You know, I have my memories and I have my rights to my memories. But today you cannot have such a voice. You cannot say yes. You know, my life has been basically good. I went to school with Muslims, with Serbs. I never knew who is who. Perhaps until I was maybe 20 years old, I didn't know. I married, I, I married twice. Both my husbands were Serbs from Croatia, the problematic group. But this is not why I divorced them, you know. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but I was never very much aware of that, you know. Now, there is a fact that in 1980, census, last census, there were 1.5 million Yugoslavs declared. This is, there was no such a thing as a Yugoslav. You couldn't say you are Yugoslav. They would declare you um, undecided or something like that. But it was a new phenomenon, and it was a phenomenon of educated generation of uh, uh, people who were uh, about 30 years old at that time. Now, uh, the, the other, uh, so in order, uh, this is what I mean, you know, you have to reconcile with your past in order to accept your new identity. And what is the new identity, you know? The thing is that the feeling, the physical feeling, if you want, is shrinking of the country. You live in a country that has two twen 22 million inhabitants. You, uh, you live in a country of variety. You used to travel from, I don't know, from south to, the, from north to south or vice versa or whatever. You used to go, I mean, people from Belgrade uh, own houses in Istria, which is uh, 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 west, north part of the, of the coast and so on. And all of a sudden, this is not possible. Not only that it is not possible, but you are supposed to not to cross the border. Not only that you cannot cross the border, there are no physical possibilities. People have been killed there. There are 30,000 on, on both sides, uh, people killed, you know. But on the other hand, on the other hand, what is happening? What is happening is that we have been reduced to our nationality. There is a certain kind of, there is a, a, this type of homogenization that I think it's, um, it's terrible. And I have to say that I cannot accept it. Um, I, what I'm trying to do, I think is uh, just to keep one tiny little space for my person, for my personal butt, you know. I, I, what I would like to, to wear is a, a, a badge saying, I am a crot butt. What does this butt mean? This butt means, you know, there th I'm other things too, you know and not hurt in the first place. But what homogenization, especially in the situation of war, is doing to the person is that it is reducing you, taking away every single aspect of your life. Either you are a woman or you are a journalist or you are a mother or you are, uh, I don't know, whatever, you are nothing but a crowd. It is quite understandable in the situation of war, but it is also terrible to live that, you know. The thing is that I think that as a person, as a human being, you can even survive this situation if you're lucky enough, you know, if you don't, I mean, something or somebody doesn't kill you. But the thing is that as a writer, this is a very dangerous situation. As a writer, you are not very likely to survive that. I've been observing that process in my country. It's really very difficult to survive as a writer this situation of national homoge homogenization. As the situation is now, no one is actually allowed not to be a Croat or not to be a Serb for that matter, you know. The person who, who, who stood up, Mirko Kovac, a, a very famous uh, Serbian writer who stood up and said, well, this, what, what Serb, Serbs are doing to Croatians is not right, it has been forced into exile, you know. So it's, uh, it's not a joke, you know. Uh, but I have to say one thing. 
to fight for this, but to fight for your identity, which is writer's identity in the first place, you know, human too, of course, is we have to draw the line. It's more difficult for a Croat writer than for a Serb writer because Croat Croatia is uh, fighting a defensive war. And if you don't accept the rules of the game, you are a traitor. And this is a serious matter in the, in the situation of war. So, but basically I think fighting for this Ali or but, in my language is Ali, and this is where I end, I found it in my case and in the cases that I've been observing during the war situation is the choice not of a writer, but the choice of a citizen. So it's, I mean, speaking about the title of this, of this meeting, he, us here. It's very difficult to draw the line, but I feel more that people are, you know, uh, behaving according to their character, according to their um, ability to be brave or not to be brave, to shut up, to go and fight or to write, you know. Thank you. Thank you, Slavinka. Uh, Adam Zagajewski. I'm laconic. My danger is that I will speak for three minutes instead of five. Uh, I have no problems with nationalism. I love other languages, uh, and not only the Russian language, but uh, other languages as well. So it's, it won't be a very personal statement. Um, I'm trying to, to find a a historical model for this, what's, what's happening now. And it just came to my mind that perhaps the, the, ex the spiritual exchange, the exchange of letters between Erasmus and Luther can provide us with sort of a model. You remember Erasmus, the, the humanist, in confronted by the passionate Luther, the violent Luther, Protestant religion nowadays is a lukewarm religion and uh, all too rational, but it used to be very violent in the beginnings. They were burning uh, paintings, destroying art, and, and Erasmus was extremely unhappy with this uh, passion. He himself was a very moderate man, tolerant one. And he asked Luther to be the same, but it didn't work with Luther. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the model is not bad because what we witness is the breakdown of the last universal religion, which was the anti-totalitarian religion. The anti-totalitarian religion combined uh, the universal creed of humanism with some very strong religious elements. There were, it was like a, a, an impossible combination of, of some elements of Catholic religion, some elements of human rights, uh, passion, and all aggressivity was invested into the enemy in, in, in the totalitarianism, which was nasty and w deserved it well. So for a while, this was this impossible combination of noble feelings and spiritual quest and noble behavior. But now it's all over because uh, with the disappearance of the enemy, the anti-totalitarian religion is like Catholic religion in 16th century. It, it, does, it has no uh, motive to exist. So we now, we have to do with Luther's and Erasmus's of our time. And we writers tend to be more uh, Erasmuses, 
can you make a plural out of uh, <laughs> rasps? Uh, the, the trouble is also that the anti-totalitarian religion was actually exactly what the liberal democracy is about, but it was made younger, more energetic, out of this all, all these passions of oppressed people. It was uh, like the liberal democracy ideal, but put under the skin of a young woman or a young boy, very beautiful, very active, very courageous. And liberal democracy itself is tired and old and not very attractive. If you go to Switzerland, you ask, what do the people live on? They, you don't just know what is the, the spiritual reason of all this, of this wonderful country, which is peaceful and tolerant, but there's nothing. There's just nothing. And so for a while, the anti-totalitarian creed provided uh, a spiritual nourishment and spiritual food. But with the disappearance of totalitarianism, uh, there's nothing to live on. And I think that the, the looters of our time uh, will be very successful because what they offer is temperature. I think it, it is this high temperature of, of expression, high temperature of ideas. I don't think that it's a conflict between orthodox religion and Catholic religion. It is a conflict between high temperature and low temperature, between humanism and Luther. And we are here, we are the, the, the worst persons to, wit to, 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 to give testimony because we are on the side of Erasmus. We don't have this, this passion of nationalism. We should invite, uh, uh, what is the name of this guy? Zhirinovsky. Or, oh, or have a lot of <laughs> fun. <laughs> so, as much as I hate nationalism, I try to understand it, and I think that nationalism is like the, the ugly face of a beautiful medallion, because it is the ugly face of this anti-totalitarian drive. You had this drive, but you, once it's over, once, once the enemy is not there, you just get the ugly face. The, the, the beautiful face is gone, the face of sacrifice, of being, a, uh, being ready to go to prison, there are many people among nationalists we, we would hate now who 10 years ago were ready to, to, the, to the greatest sacrifice. And then you, you would admire them. And they are still the same people, but they, they sort of came over to the, another set of ideas, to the Luther's ideas, to the ideas of intolerance. Uh, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the format we would like to now follow is questions either to one member of the panel or uh, in some cases to more than one. I hope not to all at one time or we won't have time for many questions. Uh, I would ask those of you who are undoubtedly present who have burning urge to make a statement to save the statements for the second part of our open program so that we can have the questions first and a dialogue, which is surely what we came for in the first place. Uh, 
someone over here. Uh, could you come to the microphone? I'm sorry it's cumbersome, but if you would come to the microphone, please. I'm coming from the Budapest University Law School and uh, Political Science. Well, my question refers to the case of uh, Yugoslavia, because that one is nowadays, according to my perception, the most crucial one. And if we would be able to find a solution for uh, those ethnicity-related problems uh, in uh, the former Yugoslavia, we may also, I'm deeply convinced, find a solution as far as uh, ethnicities are concerned in the entire part of Eastern Europe, the old continent. Well, uh, you mentioned that prior to, Mrs. Draculic mentioned that uh, prior to 89, um, kind of uh, Yugoslavianism could uh, develop. But what was the major pr problem? That the idea was mostly based on a totalitarian system. And let's know, to put that problem quite briefly, a, a comparison between the pre-war Yugoslav experience and the communist one. In 1929, unless I'm mistaken, was brought into being the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. The name, the official name of the country has been changed from the former Serbian, uh, Croatian, and Slovenian uh, kingdom. And uh, what did the then king of uh, the recently created Yugoslavia? Excuse me, I hope, I hope you will get to the question soon well, because okay. the, uh, the history of this region yeah. would take the rest of the afternoon, uh, well, as, uh, uh, as you know. Uh, the, the problem then uh, was that uh, Yugoslavhood was uh, being developed, but how? On a totalitarian basis. And what do you think? All these ethnicity-related problems could be solved on the basis of a, uh, of a civil society. This is my question. Thank you. Smalenka. Uh, yes. It's probably it would take another seminar of three days or so to answer to that. I'm not political scientist, so I can give you very, you know, just my opinion. Of course, the civil society is a way out of it, but I think we are way, way out of the civil society, you know. And, uh, you know, funny, it, it's really funny, but Yugoslavia has been always regarded in some kind of experimental zone, and it still obviously is, you know. It's very hard what is going to be the solution, you know, and I don't have a clue. But the thing is that what you said about uh, concept of Yugoslavianism as totalitarian concept, I'm not quite, quite sure about that. I don't, I cannot, maybe I'm not a good person to say that, you know, to measure how much was it really uh, a totalitarian concept on how, uh, how much we we were already on the on, on, on the other side in terms that we didn't care so much about that, you know, that we care more about uh, we were in position to more to care more about the other things, you know. It's not that we didn't know that we are either Croat or Serb or whatever. But you, uh, I would like to ask you one question. Uh, of course, there is no <laughs> no time to answer to that. We can Rhetorical talk later. question, I hope. Uh, mm. And this is. Uh, how, co uh, how come that those people in this region lived for, for, for 45 years in peace and it is not only because of a terrible repression? Um, 
Could I, I, I have one person already registered for a question, but if anyone has a particularly a question for George Conrad, I'd like to call on that person's because George will be leaving early. <laughs> have I been misinformed? All right, I was misinformed. Uh, no hurry for Mr. Conrad. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> My name is Anna Husarska. I write for the New Republic. My question is to Tatiana, who uh, I, I think the, I think the microphone goes up. Um, <laughs> this, uh, pa Pamela, can you? Uh <laughs> oh, bravo. Thank you. Uh, the question relates to the Russian language being spoken in most of Eastern and Central Europe, and it is being used as a lingua franca, and I'm glad that it exists, but I have big problems communicating with Albanians or Romanians or Czechs in Russian. They somehow reject it. Mm -hmm. I guess you know why. And I don't think that the comparison with uh, the English language being spoken in this country is good because people came here to be part of this country, whereas the Russian language kind of came with the Red Army to us. Right. So, so I guess... No, you well agree I with me that the, the rejection of, of the Russian by, by East Europeans has different... Has different grounds, of course. Yeah. Th there, is, there is no doubt about that. It is just... Uh, it, is, it, it happened, and it exists, and now you can reject it, you can dismantle all this system of this lingua franca that al already penetrated everywhere, and uh, uh, all, all things are at the same time good and bad. You can regard each... Um, each event of that kind and each uh, um, each serious process as having good sides and bad sides. Uh, for example, uh, English language, yes, it uh, it is spoken by people who all came here and agreed to join that language and to Wonderful. speak not Dutch but language, for example, not Irish, not German, but English, but it could be otherwise. It could be otherwise because uh, I think that I may be mistaken, but my uh, impression is that it is dominant in this part of the world just because uh, either there were more uh, people from England or they had more political influence. It could easily turn out that uh, you would all speak Spanish or Dutch if if the history somehow turned uh, in uh, other direction. No, the problem uh, and. Also, we all speak English in Europe. Uh, there it's the lingua franca of the whole world, mostly, except, well, I don't know, some distant countries where I've never been. But in all Europe, I uh, find people who speak English, uh, except some part where they prefer French, and my French is pretty poor. Then I have another problem. Well, anyway, it's the problem not of uh, who was wrong, who was right. It's the problem of what may happen next when people... Uh, forget Russian deliberately, and then what will happen next? How will they contact with each other? Then English would be the universal, the world language, right? I, I just want to add, I'm very glad I speak Russian so that I can communicate with you in Russian. Well, I'm very glad <laughs> that I speak English, otherwise I won't be here. Thank you. <laughs> may, may I add something? Yes. Uh, uh, one Mr. Moment. Milos would like yeah. to say something, and then we'll take another question. Part of Europe, when we get drunk, we all speak Russian. but only in that state. <laughs> and we are always in that state. It's well known. <laughs> 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 
This is to all the participants on, on the panel, but especially the two gentlemen from uh, Poland. Would you mind identifying yourself? Oh, for my them? name is Mickey Zweig. Okay. Uh, to all the people on the panel, especially two gentlemen from Poland, uh, the one thing that both occupiers, the Nazis and the Soviets, had in common was forced non-military labor. Lenin initiated it in his country before this, uh, the occupation. Uh, Hitler initiated it in his country before the occupation. Now, forced non-military labor has been, is out. Uh, some people in this country want a system of universal non-military national service. I find very frightening parallels between the Nazi Hans Frank, the governor general of Poland, who in 1942 conscripted Polish men and women to work in Germany as to show gratitude toward the German occupiers for liberating their country. I'd like uh, your opinion of universal national service. Thank you. Uh, I think this issue concerns the United States more than the disunited states of East Europe. So uh, with due respect, none of our two panelists would like to comment on that question. Yes, please. My name is Peter Rigos. I am a New York and UN correspondent of the second hung uh, largest Hungarian daily papers called Courier. My question is to Mr. Conrad. We are here uh, to hear and to talk about uh, nationalism. We try to approach point from different kind of historical uh, point of view. But uh, the question is, how does it work, the nationalism, if it is in Hungary in the present time? Two days ago, I heard a speech from a Hungarian writer, name is Istvan Benedek, in New York, who was mentioning uh, in, Mar in March 15, uh, in this year, which is the, national, the biggest national holiday of the Hungarians, they, he called this uh, uh, day, uh, uh, the so-called Treuga Day. Uh, what happened with you, Mr. Conrad, this year on March 15 or March 14? Can you tell us something about this Treuga Day in Hungary in the present time? I don't understand why even Treuga Day is the, on this day, this is the anniversary of the Hungarian Democratic Revolution in 1848. And uh, young writers uh, and intellectuals, even one of the best poets of this time, Petőfi, uh, seized uh, a printing machine he put his hand on this printing machine and 12 points uh, demands of the uh, national independence, uh, uh, citizen rights, freedom of the press. First was the freedom of the press, it was the first demand. Uh, were by a big mass of people accepted and then distributed all over in the and it was somehow the start of this uh, democratic, bourgeois, national revolution. 
but uh, for us it is uh, mostly the anniversary of the of the citizens of this town of young uh, intellectuals who broke through it was not the achievement of the political class it was the achievement of the young radicals so if in a time when the freedom of the press is under pressure again and uh, if oppositional voices are labeled from a, a government which said that uh, he is center from the right, center right, and which shifts in his rhetoric toward the right, uh, is constantly uh, put in question if uh, uh, the oppose, oppositionals are labeled as enemies, and it was the old vocabulary of the communists, then it's quite clear uh, that on this day people speak about the freedom of the press. Uh, I was one of the persons who issued a kind of democratic charter, uh, which uh, is uh, 17 point, which contains 17 points. These are uh, main demands and the general text is, uh, we will have democracy if, and there are the conditions which uh, precise somehow the distinction between state and society and the limits of the uh, influence of the government in the uh, field of the economics, culture, education, press, and so on. Uh, and. Uh, 20,000 people signed it personally, send it back and declare that they are ready to collaborate and they are uh, belonging to uh, different political groups. Me, I am a member of the Alliance of the Free Democrats. It was the former uh, democratic opposition. And, but not only they uh, support that and it's even somehow uh, beyond the party lines because it's somehow a program of the citizens, Hungarian society, a kind of bourgeois society is the demand uh, citizens, yes, in Hungarian it's somehow others, burger. Uh, uh, then uh, a national authoritarian rule. Of course we spoke about that on this day. And uh, I was asked to uh, make a speech. I did it at the statue of Petufi. Some other friends of mine did it too. It was around 15,000 15, people. And it was a nice feast. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, the mayor of Budapest, made it there too. He spoke also on that. And he spoke on that issue with reason and with right. He was, the, I would say, the atlas of the Samizdat, so the key figure of the Samizdat press, uh, Gabor Demski is his name, and uh, he hold it together, the network of the underground press. So he had also reason to, uh, to say that uh, 
a kind of uh, etatization and uh, uh, taking over uh, the medias and uh, uh, the interpretation of uh, critical voices as uh, uh, as traitors, traitors uh, uh, of the country. How, how do you say it in English? Sorry. Traitors? Traitors of the country, yes. And it is uh, quite uh, uh, regular, uh, regular or usual. So uh, these are problems uh, what a democratic society has to uh, discuss. Thank and you. Then, uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> one other moment, then we went uh, uh, to another square with some friends where it was another demonstration. It was an extreme right-wing demonstration which wanted to break through in the uh, television building and uh, wanted to occupy it. And uh, the main demands were national media and Christian media. And as the people who were in this other demonstration, they were around 1,000, uh, were very upset. Mm. They couldn't occupy the television. Some police guard was there. Uh, yes, uh, they attacked verbally uh, me and some friends, and uh, these uh, uh, adjectives occurred a lot, and it was reasonable to leave the place uh, before uh, the clash will become physical. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, can I have another question? Uh, sorry, my finger seemed to point to two people, so why don't you come first since you were nearer, and then the other person. It is, um, my name is Asagulla. It is more, uh, let's say, a question that cannot be answered by anyone, yet and everyone can sort of think about it. Um, uh, I, I, am, I am asking myself whether the uh, sudden outburst of uh, violence uh, isn't somewhat connected to the, uh, to the vocabulary outfit of the uh, ideology. Iron curtain all of a sudden falls, and the CNN mentioned before arrives on the scene until the Iron Curtain fell. People that lived in the east of the Iron Car Curtain, though they were told that they played a major and final role in the Hegelist history, as Marx and Hegel conceived of it, they were somewhat relegated into the marginal existence. They were given a word, world, and functioning it. Which, which gave them purely functional place in it. And being elements of a functioning mechanism, they themselves did not exist. And we know that since childhood we w like to curve our names in the bark of the tree, do this, sometimes absurd things, just to manifest our existence, prove ourselves to be existing. And all of a sudden the iron curtain fells, the TV camera is there, and therefore every actually good or bad reason for making a, 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 a for, for let's say blowing a cloud of sm of smoke or dust into the faces of the 
of the uh, amazed uh, world, West, for that example, is a, it would be one psychological example that all those things do not have to be necessarily ideological or, um, or um, oh, yes, whether that can be one of the uh, reasonable ways of looking at the problem. Thank you. That's my Adam, is this uh, something you'd like to? Yeah, yeah I would just uh, yeah, I agree with, with one point. I think it's an, an interesting remark, which is really true, that there were some, the, lost, the, the last <coughs> sort of installments of this Hegelian illusion. We are the heroes of the, of the better mankind. Even if you were, even if you were against communists, you still thought, well, we are more advanced than Western countries because we are over the Hegelian mountain. We are, and now it's just—it's true. The, all these countries are are degraded to sort of third world countries. With n the world has no interest in them. Well, a little bit. But <laughs> uh, so I agree with with this. Thank you, Cheslav. Uh, yeah, to some extent I agree because what can be observed is that uh, those feelings and strong national feelings. Uh, over there are mostly directed against, against, they are negative. They are not in the defense of what is considered uh, um, as belonging to a given group, but directed against another group. Those are very aggressive uh, feelings. And from that point of view, they are dangerous because they are a transformation from, let us say, defense of national uh, values uh, into an aggression directed against others. Thank you. Yes, another question here. My name is David Levitt. I'm an American student. Um, my question is directed to you, Mr. Miloš. Um, you criticized um, uh, the way American history is, is taught to, to children in the United States. And I agree with you. I, I, I believe um, that's probably one of the reasons <coughs> that I wasn't interested in it, because I didn't believe that we were getting a, a thorough history. And it, it seems to me that, that most histories are generally biased, um, um, depending on uh, who it is that, that's telling that history. And from what I understand of, of your individual histories, they are also complicated and, um, and very difficult to, um, to know. Um, and the question that I'm bringing to you is, is the question of, of um, remembering those histories as um, Ms. Tolstaya talked of, of Korea, where there were the, the, the North and, and the South Korean monkeys, and, and how this all seems um, very factual and true. As we know, it's the history. All these histories get changed. And, and um, I wonder about the future as far as the forgetting of these histories goes, um, how little of them we remember and how that affects what, what moves us into the future. I want to get back to the actual question of today's discussion, which is the writer's dilemma and how um, we as, as today's writers can uh, uh, offer something rather than these um, destructive discourses of how violent and turbulent the times are. I mean, ever since Yeats, you know, um, and Blake, we've we've been pretty aware of that I, you know, it's uh, what what Good. what do we have yeah. to look forward to? Thank you, thank you. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I see a dilemma uh, as far as the teaching of history at the uni uh, American University is concerned. Now, not only once there was history of the world limited to, to the Western Europe, uh, the United States, now everything right, should be covered in, in uh, classes of history. How to cover yeah. history of the whole planet, of all civilizations? That's practically impossible. Uh, and of course, as to the bias, I consider that one problem of nationalism now in Europe is that every country has its own history, namely eulogized or mythologized history of its own uh, country. And there is a clash of histories this is at the root of, uh, of those uh, many uh, even terrible battles between people because they have very different visions. And I should say that not nationalism as ideology mm, uh, today in Europe is rampant. No, uh, quite unconscious uh, mm, uh, submission to what is, so to say, in the air of a given community and which is connected with textbooks, with, uh, with what they learn. I guess that this is, this is uh, uh, something which goes beyond uh, pious uh, uh, mm, desires. I appreciate uh, Zagajewski's uh, mm, pronouncement on the side of Erasmus and against uh, Luther. But there is another task, uh, search for truth. Uh, I believe personally that there is a possibility of objective truth in history, even if a certain amount of deformation <coughs> is, is difficult to avoid. And this is a question of unifying, a, a certain unified vision. I mentioned that I, I am somehow, uh, uh, both I try to understand the position of the Poles, let I say, and, and Lithuanians, the position of the Poles and the Ukrainians, mm, that's a, but this uh, calls for a great effort, because you have to, so to say, to transcend one vision of history and another vision of history. Thank you very much. Chesnav Milos, is there another question here? Could you come to the microphone, please? In uh, some of the countries of Eastern, my name is Sarah Ibrahim. In some of the countries of Eastern Central Europe, uh, writers and artists have become political leaders. I wonder if some of you could comment on the effect on politics of this and whether or not it's a positive or negative phenomenon. I didn't hear you. Uh, the, um, I'll tell you why. Slavenko, would you, uh, you have a country whose leader uh, was a historian at one time, I believe? Uh, yeah, mm. well, he said, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he claims he still is, you know. <laughs> and I think we should believe him, why not? Uh, 
Indeed. Um, you know, we don't have uh, actually a writer as a head of the state. I mean, there is no Czech person here, so, you know. <laughs> but uh, I personally um, don't feel great about that, I have to say. I know that this is, uh, you know, just a um, coincidence probably, or not coincidence. It's, uh, you know, in what happened in the last uh, 20 or 30 years because those writers were in opposition and so they came to power, but I don't like to see the people there. I don't like to see writers in that position. I don't like to see them either as, as, a, as, a, as a president or prime ministers or nowhere near the power. I have to say that I'm all very old fashioned in that sense because I think that power uh, politics is, um, is, uh, mm, is compromising and I think that power corrupts and I think that if we well, I don't have illusion uh, because we had the now the three-day seminar uh, no, conference at Rutgers saying, well, well, what is the future of the writers in this world, especially in Eastern Europe, so on. We said, well, what is waiting for us is actually marginalization, as in this country, you know. But the thing is, okay, uh, uh, we are going to be marginalized. But on the other hand, I think, um, speaking about power, writer or intellectual has to keep his fingers away from from the power as as much as he or she can because i think that these people are still able to voice criticism they have to have a critical distance you know to keep critical distance between the power and themselves in order to 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 voice this criticism otherwise what you know this is a I think it is a big thing, and I just simply don't like to see them there. May I, <laughs> May I add something? Uh, Václav Havel uh, is uh, leading Czechoslovakia, and last uh, day we, we heard a very moving uh, pronouncement by Kristeova, who, who is in the Czech government. Uh, <coughs> The first prime minister uh, of Poland after the fall of communism was Mazowiecki, an intellectual writer, journalist. Uh, Landsberg is, is uh, uh, president de facto of Lithuania and he is musicologist by profession. Uh, so I, I am not very skeptical. Uh, I what, uh, uh, what I observe, you know, that some people simply take what is called power because there are no other people around. They must. There is a sort of, uh, of obligation. And whether uh, power corrupts, I, I, I remember uh, saying that the absolute power corrupts absolutely. But uh, I believe that in a democratic state, uh, one can maintain relatively clean hands and uh, uh, make a decision, make decisions which would be wiser than decisions of uh, professional politicians. Uh, is this a supplementary question to what was just discussed? Uh, I, well, I, I know. I mean, I think I should take others first. I'm sorry. Uh, two here. Uh, well, this thing is uh, suddenly taking uh, fire here, just as I was going to announce a recess. Uh, please. Uh, so, uh, Mike, and then... Uh I'm Edmund Mike Keeley. Oh. This is not really in defense of uh, President Havel, but I thought uh, it, was a, it was an occasion to introduce his very interesting remarks at Davos back in February, when it seemed to me that uh, somebody who is faced with a kind of everyday 
problems that he has to face, was able to rise very much above those political uh, and, and institutional problems in order to express a, a general view that I think is interesting, and it relates to some of the things we've said before. I'm not going to go into the whole view, but what he is saying in essence is that it's time to now move to the end of what we call the modern world into a postmodern world, and one thing that would define that postmodern world would be a recognition that objective systems do not work, that systems in general do not work, that the technological age has come to an impasse, and that it's time now for what he calls subjectivity, the more personal approach, the anti-technological <coughs> approach, and even, to some degree, the non-rational approach, because it's rationalism that he sees as the basis for that systemic view of the world. Does this help to answer the question of the Swiss void that you were talking about? Would this be a prelude to creating some form of belief that would guide us through the postmodern world? That's my question. Adam, I go, I go to Adam to first. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm afraid not. Well, I think that the, the weakness of the liberal democracy is that it doesn't have its cultural expression or, or the Hollywood's movie are the best universal expression on, on the cultural level. What you said, quoting Havel, I, I, I like this sort of attitude, but I'm just afraid it's not very efficient uh, politically and culturally because you, you have to have both. You, don't, you, you have to rely both on a, on a political vision and uh, on a spiritual or cu and cultural vision and I see no possible or no real combination of both uh, as given as, as being underhand and, and I'm afraid that the, the, the Hollywood's movies are will, will still flourish as, as the, the cultural expression of this wonderful political system which is liberal democracy Meredith My name is Meredith Tax, and I'm addressing this to the writers from Poland and Hungary and Yugoslavia, especially Savenka. Um, and I want to know how you think the rise of virulent nationalism and militant Christianity relates to changes in the position of women in these countries, which have certainly declined in Poland, but I don't know much about Hungary or Yugoslavia. I don't hear her. Well, the, the question was uh, how this militant nationalism and the Christianity relates to the position of women in that part of the world. Change. Was that the question? Did I? Yes. Okay, fine. It's not exactly the topic, but uh, actually, of course, I mean, um, uh, you know, there it's I should say that uh, it's different in, in, in Yugoslavia, perhaps, because it's in, in Croatia, because it's a, it's a war, but there is a militant, um, there is a militant uh, Christianity all over Catholicism actually, and also I've, what I observed is that uh, the new uh, new so-called democratic governments uh, are actually very conservative towards women because there is there is just one basic relation. I don't want to go very very you know in, a, in an explication of this question, and this is um, um, wh wherever you have nationalism, there is a, you know the vim women is always put in a position. To, to bear more children, she is pressed into having more children, and she is put into the function function of the state. You know, she is just a kind of womb. You know, to produce more soldiers, more Serbs, or more Croats, or more Czechs, or more Poles, or more 
Slovaks and so on and so on. So uh, I think that uh, uh, it is not yet as bad as it is going to be. Uh, but it doesn't sound very optimistic. That um, I'm going to stick to having one writer re reply to questions because we seem to be getting more all of a sudden and I was hoping to wind this up by about 2 o'clock. I had a question back there and I have one in the front row over here. My name is Vivian Gruder. The nationalist genie, genie is undoubtedly out of the bottle. The question is, how do we cope in the future? Is there no hope in Central and Eastern Europe for some kind of federal schemes of government in which there would be a wide dosage of cultural autonomy for the myriad uh, ethnic groups that exist in that area? If one starts from the premise that the Helsinki Treaty states that national boundaries cannot be political boundaries cannot be changed, and there is the fact of life of so many different peoples living there. Can that not provide a scheme for some future peace? Uh, yes, this is, a, this is an extremely important question, a basic question, I should say. Uh, the change of borders, we see to what it leads in, in Yugoslavia. Uh, this is a deadly beginning of something, uh, deadly change of borders. Uh, my hope is that the borders wouldn't be changed. And then, of course, the next question is what to do with uh, groups of another language, another culture, enclosed within the border of the states. Uh, the question is very acute in the Baltic states because there, are, there is considerable uh, minor Russian minority now in Estonia, in Latvia, uh, a little less in Lithuania, but there is a Polish minority in, uh, in Lithuania. Uh, I mean, uh, as to language, the question, uh, the question is to what extent we will be able to uh, reconstruct the model uh, of Finland, because uh, uh, I don't know whether you realize that the best po Swedish poets uh, of modern uh, times, of modernism, were not S Swedes, but Finnish. They were, because in Finland, the upper class spoke Swedish and people spoke uh, uh, Finnish. And after the f uh, First World War, there was a bilingual system, which still is preserved, but more and more uh, victory of Finnish is practically definitive. Less and less people speak Swedish. Uh, so, but that, that was a sort of a, a, a evolutionary uh, process, gradual process. Uh, this is a, but this is sometimes extremely difficult to apply. Let us say, in Lithuania, my ancestors lived for centuries in Lithuania, but they were not of Lithuanian language. And the question is, at a given moment, after the First World War in Lithuania, there was a, a division. If you speak uh, Lithuanian, you are Lithuanian. If you speak Polish, you are not Lithuanian. And, uh, and this is, I consider, those two countries, those two models, 
uh, are uh, really two poles showing uh, solution and a lack of solution. And there, were, there are always historical reasons which make a solution uh, difficult or impossible. Because why in Lithuania that was such a, such a division? Because uh, Lit Lithuanian language is an extremely difficult language. It is a language defending itself against uh, encroachments both of the Slavs and the Germans. And uh, it, it would probably disappear submerged by, by uh, people speaking Polish or Belarusian and so on. So that was self-defense, let us say, but with, a de but with deadly results. And in every situation, uh, we have to look for those historical roots of, of, of such a situation. But undoubtedly, either we find a solution for uh, autonomous development of groups within the existing borders or not, or we, which we will kill each other, uh, exterminate the brutes. <laughs> Thank you. I think we've time for one last question, and then uh, we will come to an end. Yes, please. My name is Joseph Przyjemski. I was former Theological Academy and University in Poland. I would like to continue, I suppose not for this place, for next months and years. The discussion uh, started with two um, speakers about the role, contemporary role of the intellectuals, and I'm continuing and going higher uh, to the Nobel Prize winners. We are lucky to have Mr. Czesław Milos, our highly honored Nobel Prize winner, even in some American encyclopedia, I see US, US <laughs> Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> but I, I think we must change the world in the positive way where we have to look for finding and working solution to uh, avoid horrible, tragical fight between almost like uh, brothers in the nations, the, the false nationalism. For example, in the Polish government is working very quietly with Lithuanians, but I observe with the information we are getting that some form now very nasty enemies of Polish people where KGB agents, high communist officers, s simply they want to clear their name and they form an activity and to show uh, how they're patriotic they are. Excuse me, could yes. you come to the question? I did yes. uh, allow I'm, you I'm last. So. I'm concerning that, for example, in Yugoslavia, we have United Nations Security Ensemble, but decision is so late, and dispute with intellectuals, politicians from European organization was completely without any effect. And the United Nations force... E excuse me, you... Yes. You have to assume that the audience knows almost as much as you yes, do yes, on this question. So I think the please role put the question. Of the intellectuals, there should be some organization. I have seen, I have seen with big pleasure, over 100 Nobel Prize winners. They disputed all over miseries in the world, and I think they have, they have authority because of high intellect, high talents. 
they should organize some section by United Nations to be advisors, to give ideas, to give solutions to horrible economical situation. Because in Thank Poland, for yes. example, Professor Zaks. I'm sorry. Thank you. I, you have made a statement yes. and on there. I think that we will end with contributions from the audience because I feel obliged to ask the speakers if they would like to make a comment either on what you have just said or on what has been said before. Well, I'm sorry, you have occupied more time than the audience has patience for. Uh, Adam, do you have anything further you'd like to add before we close? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll perhaps close on a more practical note. I coming down from, from historical um, analogies, I, I think also, uh, because of course the, the level of consideration, a very practical one, is, is an important one. And, and if I look at, at the Central and Eastern Europe, I think one of the, the, the biggest obstacles for sort of friendly collaborations of nations is snobbism. There's a lot of pecking order established in this, in this part of the world. So Germans look uh, disdainfully on, on, on Polish culture because for them it's, it's not the highest culture. The Poles look disdainfully upon the U Ukrainian culture. The Russians look disdainfully upon the Lithuanian culture and it's to to g do away with all this established snobbism and and pecking order it, it's a very very uh, hard work but the only consolation I think about is that the Protestant religion which was so violent in the very beginning uh, uh, became so lukewarm now so perhaps the same thing will gradually arrive to, to, to Eastern European nationalism, I think. Adam, I had no idea you were so such an expert on Protestantism. <laughs> and it's, uh, <laughs> Just today. <laughs> <laughs> Tatiana, do you have anything you'd like to add before we finish? I don't have any anything positive to add. <laughs> Um, just because, uh, well, in order to be positive, you have to be an optimist and you have to have some hopes. Usually when they speak about optimism is they speak about uh, expecting something good in near future. And uh, if you expect some good, but not in the near future, then you're not an optimist. And, well, <laughs> here it all starts and so on. Vicious uh, circle. I'm not an optimist, of course, because I think that um, mm, the realistic approach shows that there is nothing positive in near future but eventually of course there will be a lot of positive things out of the process we are uh, witnessing now and I think that um, what what is going on the um, the rays of nationalisms different nationalisms and the um, the appearance of new countries on the map it is uh, pretty disturbing for nearly all of us personally but um, eventually it may be a good thing because who knows? Who knows uh, what are the God's plans, so to say? Maybe in 500 years it will be regarded as the uh, best period in, um, well, this coming millennium uh, with new languages appearing, with uh, some languages just being purified from uh, some distorting uh, influence of uh, foreign words which which is happening mm, with new writers being born new national writers that would somehow pull the culture of the given area 
uh, up. Some some minorities do not have any written culture, and uh, why not? They uh, they are as good as others theoretically. Just give them time. Mm, so I think that uh, in the long run. I'm rather an optimist. I think that history never comes to an end, that life uh, cannot come to an end. Uh, I think we have to wait for 15 billion years and until the sun uh, you know, uh, blows up. So we have some time. Four. Oh, Thank you. too bad. <laughs> That's too bad. Thank you. I, I would go back for a second to your statement not a question, right? Uh, I completely agree with you. Let's put all Nobel Prize winners together and make them into advisory board, you know, to all crazy leaders <laughs> in this world. Uh, but I'm afraid it, it, it won't work because they're not only intellectuals good guys, but also intellectuals bad guys, you know. And I have to say just one thing, <laughs> um, because there is no time to explain that, that intellectuals in Yugoslavia have been working years and years and years for this to happen, for war to happen, and actually they themselves were really the avant-garde of the war. But <laughs> I would like to, to ask maybe a question to, to, to someone. As uh, a Nobel Prize winner, you can break the rules. The question, the question, is, the question is, you see, after all, in Yugoslavia, some writers, in my opinion, failed that examination. I don't want to, to, to cite names, but it is obvious for me that many uh, uh, colleagues of mine in Yugoslavia, whom I knew personally, failed. They didn't dare to speak against national passions because it is dangerous, it is not dangerous because they would put in jail by the government, but they would be ostracized by the, their public opinion. So what's the question? Excuse me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that problem. The question is... Well, we don't need a question necessarily. Okay, I do not need... Fine. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had a statement, I think. George, did you want to uh, say something? Or hmm. I agree with Vyslavenka <laughs> said it, that finally every madness will be tired. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> it's my optimism. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>